Welcome, E-Longevity family. I just wanted to speak briefly about this episode. It's going to be a, a good one. But the first half is about Jack the Ripper. I wanted to let you know it's not the butler. You can find out who it is after this episode. Enjoy. So welcome to the E-Longevity podcast, everyone. This is our flagship effort to bring E-Longevity to the masses. I'm your host, codenamed Lou one of the early Discord admins and Dojalon lover, of course, and I have a deep love for the Methuselah Foundation and their mission to make 90 the new 50 by 2030. And I feel like it really will be accomplished. We also want to introduce our co-host to the Elongevity family again, Britannia. Hello, Britannia. Um, I um, have 17 years of healthcare experience um, in the, with a biotech company on the commercial side, and I also have my MBA and MHA. Um, I've been a Dogalon holder for since May of 2021, and I'm excited to be here again this evening. Always happy to have you here. This is going to be a very interesting episode. We have a special guest, a doctor of molecular biology, Dr. Yadi Luhalainen. How are you doing tonight, Dr. Yadi? I'm fine, thank you, and I'm, I appreciate that you managed to uh, pronounce my na name correctly, which is not an easy task <laughs> for non-native non speaker of Finland, Finnish language. Yes, it's definitely a little bit of a tongue twister, <laughs> but we appreciate you being here. So our first question to you is, what is your background? So I was born in Finland, and um, if you don't... Um, know the geography so well that's in in europe and quite north as well so we're used to snow and everything mm. so i i started um biochemistry at the university of helsinki so uh, i was lucky to be in, in this uh top 100 university in in the world and i had really nice you know um education from there which i've been applying them ever since then and I also had a nice Canadian accent because my, my, I have cousins who are Canadians and I used to vi visit the Toronto every year and uh, at some point I, I could actually fool the locals in the, in the farmer's market that I'm, I'm Canadian. But uh, that changed when I moved to Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to lose my, my Canadian accent. Uh, I, I um, did my PhD, which is um, after, the, after the master's degree. I did that in, in Karolinska in Sweden, so which is a neighboring country to Finland. And um, my trips to Canada actually got less frequent, and, and, and I got this uh, peculiar accent now, which is sort of a sort of a mix of this and that and the other. So anyway, I did my PhD over there in, in Sweden. Karolinska is the place where they give the Nobel Prizes, you might know that. Mm -hmm. So I did my PhD in, in medical epidemio epidemiology. So in other words, it's a medical genetics and, and looking sort of the uh, um, human cancers, human tumors, and then how they are um, how they are changed uh, in the patients and, and, and so on. So so uh, that that was some six years what I, what I lived in Sweden and learned the Swedish language in three months. Uh, much better than compared what I had in school because that was my first foreign language at school. I think I had six years of Swedish studies at school, but in three three months in Sweden, living in Sweden, I learned it much better. Which I think is the usual story. <laughs> so, 
when I was just about to finish my PhD in Sweden, uh, I noticed there was an advertisement in the, in the prestigious Nature Journal. They were advertising a position in, in United Kingdom, and that's sort of a midway between the uh, Scandinavia and USA. You you could say it's a it's a fairly small island which has some 60 million people, and they were advertising this job uh, to run. Uh, who established DNA chips, which was a new thing at that time. And I was, you know, really excited. Oh, I w want this job. And then unfortunately I noticed that um, I was one day late. Mm. And uh, nevertheless, I, I just sent them an email that I, oh, I really want this job. And to my surprise, they said, oh, we couldn't find anyone. Um, and uh, gave me, sort of sent me flight tickets to UK. And that was at the start another six years and um, I was working with the uh, with these DNA chips and learned the technology and, and so on and uh, I've always been into new technologies in medical science so this was this was something I was really excited about so I also worked at the same time at the Sanger Center where they uh, sequenced the human genome for the first time so this was really good sort of um, experience in all in all you know and then again um, six years on, I noticed a, a job application or job advertisement uh, for University of Oxford, and that's a place which is usually researchers dream. It's one of the top five universities in the world, I think. So uh, that was my next uh, job. I went to live in uh, Oxford, which is a really nice and sort of. Uh, you might have seen that in the, in the old films and, and so on, or even newer films. It, it looks quite sort of a... Um, there's lots of heritage going on and an academic heritage as well. So I was doing the same DNA chips again, but with a different cancer. So these were blood related. Whereas in the, in the past I had used um, bladder um, cancers and, and also lung cancers and so on. So I was analyzing really these, these very small human cancers about the size of a pinhead, these were the bladder cancers. And then I was looking these um, DNA chips as well, again, very small items. So it seems that I'm, I'm, I was just analyzing uh, microscopic items all the time. And this is sort of a linking to, to my further study, further uh, journey as, as well. From the University of Oxford, I then uh, uh, moved to Liverpool, uh, which is uh, sort of a, on the west, west coast of the United Kingdom. And this university, where I'm now still at the moment, they were very um, sort of uh, strong on sports science and also forensic science. And the reason why I sort of shifted to that area is because the methods are exactly the same. So it's DNA genomics, and we can use the same methods in cancer research and also you know, uh, when we are looking athletes, when we want to improve their uh, recovery, if they want, if we want to have a look of the uh, how to improve the performance and so on. And on the other hand, forensics, you know, it's uh, a lot of that is relying on the DNA identification of, of uh, criminals and victims alike. Interesting. So I have a question. I have a question before you go. As a comprehensive list, I feel like we've, we've been on a journey with you hearing about your, your background. And on your biography, I read 
that you were you have two major lines of research mammalian but also medical genetics and forensic yeah so when you got to liverpool mm -hmm. is when you started to focus on the genetic side of things is that correct um it was more uh forensics and the sports science in here before that it was cancer research pretty much all, all the way along so in here then uh in liverpool i was looking hematological disorders and also the forensic side as well so sort of uh, medical and forensic uh, items together with the sports science it sounds quite quite wide and i thought I, i'm the only person in the world doing this but <laughs> i met this norwegian pro professor who is exactly the same so started from cancer research and, and started moving to forensic science so uh, yeah i mean that that's that's a powerful backlog of information and you're still at liverpool but i have a quick a question every time we we research you and and we're, do, we're doing our own research about your, your history we keep coming across the jack the ripper case right yeah so how did you get involved with the jack the ripper case well that was that's quite an interesting story first i got this email which came from australia uh, and it was a film group who said that uh, um, they have the last or the actually the only physical uh, evidence which is available for Jack the Ripper case. So my former PhD student had moved to Australia back to his home country and was running a forensic company. And I don't know if it was his black humor or if, if he actually meant that, but he had told these gentlemen that if if anyone can solve it, it's Yari in Liverpool. So all of a sudden I had this Australian film group and the owner of the um, only physical evidence for Jack the Ripper case on my door. And I knew nothing about the case. So um, I had to uh, Google, was the Jack the Ripper real? This is embarrassing, but uh, that's where <laughs> I was. And actually, actually, for for our listeners, can you do a little, uh, just a brief background as well as what the Jack the Ripper case even is? Right. Yeah. So Jack the Ripper was has been told that he is the uh, most famous serial killer ever. Although he only had five victims, and he was active in 1988. Sorry, 1888. So in Victorian times, what is it? More than 130 years ago. And he was never caught. And the British public, because this is a kingdom, their major theory was that the king was somehow, or the, or the royalty was somehow involved in this. And that would, would have been their sort of a hope for this case. But anyway, so there was no arrests done at that time. And there was only this one physical evidence, which was stored at the Scotland Yard Museum. So Scotland Yard is the local police form, force, bit like FBI in the US. And they stored this in the in the museum. And uh, at some point, and it's a long story, but it went to an auction. And this uh, gentleman called Russell Edwards bought it uh, from the person who actually won the auction. So he wanted to keep it sort of... Uh, he didn't want to be in limelight at that, that point, and he was obsessed with the, with the Jack the Ripper case. And it was something like 13 years before he started thinking, thinking that maybe this shawl, which was found from one of the, one of the victims, was somehow 
could somehow contain something from the actually for the from the person who committed the crime so Jack the Ripper himself and that's why they were in Australia trying to find uh, they had a certain suspect in mind and they were touring Australia and funnily enough this Russell Edwards uh, who owned the shawl he's originally from Liverpool <laughs> and my PhD student was Australian who actually told them in, in Australia that you should go to <laughs> Liverpool so yeah it, convenient yeah <laughs> quite amazing I would say <laughs> so when you think of it yeah so uh, these gentlemen uh, came to my door so um, it was the owner of the of the uh, shawl who, who was Russell Edwards and he was uh, accompanied with the film group and also a um, gentleman called Robin Napper who was a former uh, Scotland Yard detective so they came to the door and uh, I had sort of mixed feelings I thought is this really real maybe this is faked and I thought if I don't analyze it someone else will do it and I thought yeah i sure I can I can give it a go but they um, were in a hurry as usual with the you know, you know with the TV companies and everything they want, wanted me to analyze it there and then and I said this is not going to work and they filmed it and uh, this film is still I think running on yesterday channel and uh, some of these historic channels and you see my myself your yours truly to say that though this is not conclusive and this is because the all analysis was done in less than half an hour and I said <laughs> the only thing which, which we can find in that kind of time scale is that we have some contamination which is from the um, surroundings mm -hmm. so after that um, we still we thought uh, so me and, and Russell Edwards we thought that, okay this we could we could do something about this you know in a longer scale and do this properly and um, so first of all this evidence is um, it's two meters long and it's made of silk and it has been verified by Victoria and Albert Museum that it's over 200 years old so they they have verified that this is really the genuine thing mm. and now the thing is I started thinking this has been found from one of the victims uh, Catherine Eddowes who was known to be homeless and prostitute and silk is very expensive so how how on earth could she afford this because she couldn't even afford a house overnight so we started thinking that maybe this is something which the the actual um, murderer in other words Jack left on the scene and maybe there's some some sort of a secret message or something like that uh, because it, it was left like that so I started analyzing this um, with different methods I wanted to know that this is not faked so I, I started looking that oh, there were some forensic stains which could be seen with the crime lights and I started looking that if, if this is uh, you know sheep blood or uh, cow blood or something like that and, and there was none to found and uh, I noticed that um, part of this show has sort of a blue uh, part and the other one is very colorful like Russian type shawl and I noticed when I was analyzing this that uh, the blue dye actually was water soluble so that again verified that uh, this can't, can't have been on this uh, poor girl uh, 
when she was outside in London nights uh, because any rain would have ruined the uh, blue dye or the blue uh, patterns on, on the uh, shore. So that was one thing which I found fairly early on and I found some um, sort of uh, odd stains as well which were only visible in uh, crime light. And then the blue dye analysis I did a bit further more testing and it didn't match any of the current uh, dyes like denim which you use for jeans and it has natural product origin so we did that with a with chemical uh, instrument so it was water soluble and it had some sort of mordant which was used in, in those days so a couple of hundred years back so I was thinking that okay we know the age of the shawl it's it's hard to fake because it seems to be really the real thing and very expensive silk so the homeless victim could have not afforded this so we thought that the murderer might have uh, probably brought this with him so the major, major problem was here that uh, this might have uh, some contamination on the surface so uh, epithelial cells from humans whatever so I thought that um, if we had a method which we could use to look inside the silk so something sort of a very microscopic technique just to go inside the silk and just extract whatever we have over there and uh, I came up with this uh, so-called vacuuming method which is looking extracting the um, material from these forensic stains uh, inside the shawl and with that to cut long story short so I first time got this um, DNA which looked like old DNA because DNA if you have a fresh sample if I take say your buccal cell sample which is from the cheek or blood sample the DNA is, mm -hmm. is long and very good condition whereas these uh, these DNA fragments were short clearly damaged and uh, I thought these might be the old ones so we we started a process which is called DNA sequencing and uh, sequencing the mitochondrial DNA because the humans have two kinds of uh, DNA they we have genomic DNA which is the one which is used for human identification normally but this DNA this shawl um, inside the shawl we couldn't find any genomic DNA but we could find the human mitochondrial DNA again very sort of a supporting the idea that this is very old DNA and it's uh, it's just a mitochondrial DNA so historic cases typically rely on the mitochondrial DNA because the DNA will break it's a chemical compound so if you if you um, sort of expose it to um, heat or sunlight or something like that it will it will start to break like 9-11 um, uh, case where they had uh, the victim's DNA that degraded very quickly because of the heat in, in the building the same way so we started to find this old DNA sequence and uh, I thought that okay this is this is quite interesting scientifically because my my idea was not to find a murderer I thought this this is actually typical for scientists. I, I just thought that this is this is quite exciting. I have this old piece of uh, evidence, and I'm finding DNA from there, and that might make a nice little scientific paper, and that's it. So 
we started thinking that okay we have the uh, DNA but we don't have anyone to compare it with so these were from blood stains so um, so the idea is that okay these must be from the victim and uh, so we didn't know uh, Catherine Eddowes had any living relatives except one night um, I think I, I think it was near close to midnight I got a phone call or the actual text message from the Russell Edwards saying just that I found her and I couldn't understand what she, he was saying so there had been a <laughs> TV program which was called find my past and there was a police officer uh, female who said that uh, actually this uh, victim Catherine Eddowes was uh, her relative from mother's side so now because the mitochondrial DNA <coughs> is inherited maternally we thought that okay we can we could possibly see that if that matches her mitochondrial DNA and uh, amazingly she actually gave her consent and permission to do this comparison and this was quite sort of a, um, to say exciting um, moment it's because a it's a breakthrough for sure yeah this was we were actually uh, we couldn't wait the results to come back and uh, we found that more than 70% of, of the sequences which is the sort of a threshold which is usually said that that's then it's valid actually matched her mitochondrial DNA so that was a good start at that point I, I was starting to get slightly excited as you as you scientists as you know scientists are sometimes very calm that okay yeah I found this thing <laughs> uh, but this time I, I was thinking oh wow this is this is something we have a match with the living individual here and then I thought okay let's analyze it bit more before I published that we have managed to get this uh, mitochondrial DNA matching to the victim and um, I found these stains which were quite microscopic as well and they gave the same fluorescence as um, sperm would so uh, so we had uh, something which might be semen stains so again I was a bit skeptic because you might have a washing powder as well uh, which is giving similar fluorescence when you're looking under under the certain crime lines but then I knew that if this has this it's impossible that this shawl has been ever washed because the blue dye would have gone off immediately and I started looking these and uh, again here's the interesting side notice that uh, we were renting a house a uh, big manor uh, from scientist called David Miller and he had gone to uh, I think it was Houston to do the similar DNA chip analysis what I did for Cancer Research UK and uh, he happens to be one of the leading uh, experts in semen analysis and I said okay you know I found this old shawl which is linked to this crime and uh, it has possibly semen stains which are 130 years old and I, I'm surely there's nothing left in, in, in those stains and he said oh you never know you know they are they are quite sort of uh, uh, persistent sometimes and uh, let me have a look and it, time went by and then I think it was a couple of months and I um, 
actually emailed him that is is um, is this have you found anything and there was no answer but then week later he sent a couple of images you know i found these cells from these uh, semen stains and they seem to have uh, nucleus as well which means that we have suddenly um, genomic dna as well mm. so again to cut long story short we had now the victim's dna in the show and then we have the semen as well because i didn't know this either that uh, jack had this uh, um, habit of uh, you know um, ejaculate after he was killing the women i had no idea and uh, i told um, russell russell edwards that uh, i have no idea why there would be a semen and, and he was so, sort of uh, he sounded on the phone like he's getting a heart attack because this was matching the mod of, of jack the ripper there I was, knowing nothing about the case, which was a blessing in a way, because I didn't have any, any pre preconception how things have, had happened. So I quite like that. So I'm telling people things that, uh, uh, from the evidence that uh, then actually are true. So that's, that's quite cool. So anyway, we had the semen stains and then uh, all of a sudden we had these cells. So the next thing was okay to do the uh, the same similar sequencing as before and then also looking actual hair color eye color and skin color because we have the genomic dna from the from the nucleus and the next problem was of course um how do we go from there because now we need someone who who we could compare the mitochondrial dna so that we could have a match between the between the actual um murderer and the uh, and the shawl and i said mm -hmm. oh yeah you i'm sure you will find someone who will say that okay i think my great grandfather uh, is a murderer here <laughs> analyze my dna and again there we had quite a bit of luck so we found this person who we have promised to keep secret because of the uh, there are some uh, unhealthy aspects about this case as you can imagine, because this is a high-profile case, and she mm -hmm. she works in a field, um, um, sort of, uh, which make made her DNA readily available to us. And to my amazement, we again had a haplogroup match, so we had the same mitochondrial haplogroup from the descendant of the Jack the Ripper candidate, which we had to this show, and then. To top of that, we could, or I could get the uh, hair color, eye color, and skin color, which, again, I didn't know, matched the only uh, reliable uh, witness statement which the Scotland Yard had. So at that point, I started feeling that okay, we might be actually cracking this case. But before that, it was just a you know scientific exercise as you do. So this involved um, all kinds of. Uh, novel things we use the uh, um, laser capture microscope so uh, this allows us to isolate just one cell so we could take the uh, samples from the shawl so these sperm samples and just take one s cell in a test tube and uh, sequence that and do the high hair color eye color and skin color um, measurements so one cell is the smallest uh, 
unit what we have in our tissue so if you have one cell it can't be contaminated with anyone else so that's what we did as well and that was quite painstaking as well because it was, it was um, you have the microscope slides and usually uh, if you look microscope slides if you have tissue skin whatever you have the, all the cells in one place whereas when we extracted them from the shore they were all over the place in several microscopic slides so we were hunting those um, using the microscope and, and when we found the cells which had a nucleus so we could do the analysis we just zapped them up so it's a bit difficult to explain without showing any any images how it works but it, it's sort of a <laughs> it's a bit like fishing that you 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 find uh, whatever fish you like and then you pull it up and that's one fish that's your cell which you're then analyzing so this was quite new as well. This is not this was not used at the time uh, in forensics, um, you know, sort of regularly. So there were quite a, it took quite a long time this project, about three and a half years, because all of all of these things as well. So uh, yeah, it's it's there are more things involved in this which I haven't told you, but that's why it was delayed and and so on. But it was quite interesting because we had this one candidate which we got. Uh, actually hinted by the Scotland Yard and and uh, some others as, as well so we have this one um, individual and it happened to match uh, the mitochondrial DNA and the uh, and the um, mitochondrial DNA of, of the descendant as well so we had sort of a two-way um, confirmation of that and I was giving my talk um, I think it was somewhere um, south in UK and I mm -hmm. show that there are 31 main suspects of, of the Jack the Ripper case and we selected this one and we just got lucky and there was sort of images of this 31 suspects on, on the screen when I was talking I was showing them so there's one gentleman who stood up and said oh that's my great-grandfather and I'm, I thought oh, now he's going to hit no me but, way. <laughs> but he, he was just saying oh we are famous now but it, it wasn't him so it was just one of the suspects so uh, yeah anyway but they then in the end we had this um uh, work finished again and it was i think it was published 2019 in journal of forensic sciences so uh, so that's how i got involved in this and i never thought that i would be solving any historic cases but this what happened. This is something that happened out of the blue, and uh, I doubt that we will ever get this lucky again. So, so as far as I know, this is the this is a case where this Jack Ripper um, analysis, at least at genetic level, it has been taken sort of furthest furthest it can be done actually. So I can't remember mm. imagine that there would be any more physical evidence coming out of the blue. And since we did the analysis at single cell level, so you can't get any smaller than that. I mean, I, I, I can only imagine that the impact on the forensic world is, is, is incredible. And it's amazing how you saw this case just on the way to try to do something else. So I think for the rest of this, uh, this podcast, we're going to just call you Detective Yardi uh, <laughs> <Lula> Lane. <laughs> I, I, I had a, I listened to presentation of someone who works for FBI and he was just I could actually feel 
for him because he was saying the same things that oh I, I don't care who is getting uh, arrested and so I, I just love the science and I'm cracking things and you know finding things that uh, others haven't found and uh, he said it's, it sounds awful probably but this is how he feels and I, I, I feel exactly the same so it's, it's uh, yeah scientists li are like that you know look at the, look at the results there, there's something else that um, that also intrigued me about you our connection initially uh, was your involvement with physioacoustic therapy yeah so what exactly is your involvement in physioacoustic therapy right so this is more into the medical side so um, the uh, inventor Ilka Turunen who is from Finland he he contacted me because I, I gave a presentation about I think sports science and, and sport medicine and, and so on so he he emailed me that he has this novel method which has been uh, FDA approved and he thought I might be a good companion as a scientific consultant and uh, sort of uh, uh, develop the method, method further with him. So I have some background in, in physics and also IT so I understood the technology uh, what he was uh, showing but I was a bit skeptical until I saw some demonstrations how the sound waves actually go through uh, human tissues and so on and then I understood that how they can actually reach something which is inside your body but doesn't have any effect on, on the surface so a bit like you have a resonance if you have an old car and certain resonances are you know rattling your, your car panels and so on so uh, it's, it's quite amazing there are some excellent sort of uh, demonstrations how the sound waves work on YouTube where you can actually twist running water and, and so on so when I saw these I started to understand okay if we have this physioacoustic therapy uh, on, on the uh, on patients uh, you know uh, next to the body it might have an effect on, on bottom of the lungs it might have to uh, have effect on the blood circulation so little molecules they might detach from the uh, uh, blood vessel walls and, and so on so we started to uh, work together and, and think how we could take this further and, and we have a um, second version of, of the therapeutic um, uh, device now in, in, in progress so we got a little bit of funding for that so the original was a chair where you have a circulating waves on, on certain um, certain um, um, wavelength so uh, you have a uh, certain amplitudes and, and so on which are working uh, towards the better health so mm -hmm. it has been shown now that uh, there are positive effects on Parkinson patients and uh, the FDA approval was for blood circulation uh, it has been used a lot in, in sport uh, remediation sort of a sport recovery and, and so on so there's quite a few of paper of these papers now so I think the advantage of this is that um, it's non-invasive so you don't have to have any any sort of a um, prescribed drugs or you don't have to uh, go under on the surgical knife uh, to have this uh, effect so yeah Yari this is very interesting to me because sometimes people will think of it as pseudoscience yeah. you know like me personally I listen to binaural beats every single night when I go to sleep on YouTube right, right? for different things that I'm trying to work on um, you know whether it's 
I guess they, you know, you could call it binaural beats or sound healing, sound therapy, physioacoustic therapy. I'm not yeah. sure what the difference is, but um, I mean, me personally, I have actually felt a difference um, on the subconscious level, right? Because medicine has shown that we hold trauma within our body or, you know, basically everything is energy. And so, you know, this is really, really interesting um, just to hear the results that you're seeing, the medical results. And it's actually being, um, the FDA is looking at it, at certain things and approving it. Yeah. And the first, I mean, the first application I was thinking was that um, because we have cer certain conditions where you have in the lungs um, sort of a biofilms which are mm -hmm. formed by bacteria and they are funny sort of a communities where they, the bacteria, which might be quite benign, they are changing parts of, of the DNA, which are called plasmids. And some bacteria might have a resistance for, say, antibiotic called canamycin, and the other one might have a resistance for tetracycline. And in these biofilms, they are changing the information. Like if you have a community, one a person is borrowing your, a hammer and the other one is borrowing your chisel, and they all suddenly have all these tools available. And these biofilms are notoriously uh, difficult to break if they are in the bottom of the lungs. So you can't use a huge amount of antibiotics because you, the delivery of the antibiotics um, is not very efficient in the bottom of the lungs. And if you have these biofilms, they have multi-resistance and so on. So I, I have been thinking that um, at some point it would be nice to show that the, this physioacoustic therapy actually resolves the biofilms by uh, making them resonant and, and making them sort of a more um, accessible accessible for antibiotics and so on. But this is just a thought. But that was sort of a starting to, you know, starting my brain process to, to think all these applications where this would be applicable. So we know that nocturnals, nocturnal um, problems like people who have difficulty sleeping and, and so on so especially elderly people who wake up during the night that uh, this might be something which is which might work really well so there's quite a lot of these these papers now uh, which have been um, published but the parkinson one which came i think 2020 uh, that's one of the uh, um, major ones which is which has really um, shown that the, the potential of this I mean that, that it does sound pretty uh pretty amazing it, I love the illustration that you used like uh the, the sound waves rattling a car you can use these frequencies to rattle things at the bottom of someone's lungs without even uh you know doing anything on the surface but it, all the effects are inside and it's beneficial yeah I mean that that's pretty that's pretty amazing I have another question for you mm -hmm. um are there any projects that you're working on or that you're excited about and what do you think the impact of those projects will be on longevity science? Right. So this physioacoustics is, is clearly one of those. So we are we are just trying to uh, start a clinical trial um, uh, with a couple of hospitals with these. So the, these um, um, these devices are the new version version two point zero, so to speak. That's in in progress of 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 um, manufacturing now so we are, then we are looking different parameters to see that if this really has some effect on on sort of a 
uh, everyday level so that if they if patients can walk better or if they have improved memory and, and, and so on or if they have a, um, improved um, blood circulation and, and so on so that's that's clearly one of the projects I'm, I'm looking into sort of from the health science of course there are these forensic cases as, as well and but uh, I'm under NDA I can't talk too much Ooh. about them okay but then another one is which is a bit more quite a bit different so this is uh, to do with the analyzing indoor air within a novel way so the classical method is to collect the dry air and trying to identify the chemical compounds including gases which might be harmful for humans and the requirement for the classical methods are that you have to know exactly the chemical structure what you're after and this new method is analyzing the air in the water phase and it's testing the toxicity to actual human cells so those involved in immunology so we don't have to know the chemical compound so we are just uh, seeing if that actual condensate from the air say in the house which has a problem has an effect on on those immunological cells and if they show toxicity we know that, that the air is is not very good uh, quality and i think this it's the uh, world health organization has uh, defined that the indoor air is one of the one of the major health problems uh, in the future and as it happens a couple of days ago we had in uk as far as i know this was the first case where a person had died on the mold exposure in the house so this mm. this this two-year-old actually died in a in a council house so a house which was um, occupied by typically um, those people who are, who are not very wealthy so the, to, so the poorest people who are living on benefits and, and so on so he had been uh, exposed to these black molds not directly but in the indoor air and had died uh, according to corona because of this so this is something which is coming quickly and uh, classically this has been these problems what people have from indoor air have been classified as mental health problems and then they are just imagining these things and uh, we haven't found anything with the classical methods but this method is now looking uh, the human cell line so we are actually growing uh, not whole humans but the cells in in the lab and looking if if that air is toxic and i think this is a good example that we are in fact showing that there's a there's an effect on on human cells in instead of just uh, saying that uh, we have this and that amount of of certain compounds in the air so that's something which which um, i'm quite um interested at, at the moment and that has that has created quite a lot of interest as well so i'm working with a, a couple of scientists uh, and we have a sort of a prototype of the collection device which which is now in use that, that that is something that I've I've never even heard of, but I remember that you sent me that article, and it's and it's uh, it's definitely an eye opener. Um, just for all of our listeners, those who are are supporting, if they wanted to uh, look up research or look up things that that you're involved with, where could they go? Oh, it's the um, NCBI or Science Direct. Science Direct is is probably the one which is um, um, more common, more easy to find. 
So the NCBI is another one. So anything peer-reviewed you can you can find over there. So, but I, I'll probably put a website up at some point. So on my uh, university website, where, where, where I'm just thinking. I think there's quite a few of my papers at the moment, but I'm not sure if, if everything is there. I haven't okay. looked for a while myself. Huh? <laughs> Um, I do know you have about 34, 35 publications on your site because I did okay, go and right. look at your... Yeah, it's, it's there. Okay, <laughs> it's good. pretty impressive. Um, what, do you have any book recommendations? What are you reading? Um, there's one which is called uh, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in the Silicon Valley Startup. So this is the uh, famous Terranos case, <laughs> if you know. So I think this is showing quite nicely when... Uh, when you have too much expectations and, and you have someone who is really um, charismatic and can sort of a, sort of almost have a spell on you and how far they can go. This is an amazing story of uh, Elizabeth Holmes who studied the Terranos. Yeah. Yes. So yep. you can probably find it in, in Netflix as well um, as, a, as a documentary. But if you read this book, I think the author is John Carroll-Roy, if I pronounce it right. Yes. And uh, yeah, so there's such a detail of the interaction between the people in the healthcare and how on earth they, she managed to uh, sort of guide all these people and, uh, you know, even the device, which the medical device she was uh, uh, sort of uh, supposedly building was nowhere near finishing and she got billions of, of dollars for that. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one which is called the Society of Genes. I'm only halfway that, so it's uh, by Itai Yanai and Martin Lercher and the Society of Genes. So that that's, has the best um, sort of an introduction to genetics and uh, some aspects of long, longevity as as well. What I have seen in in, in recent years. It's few years old, but it's still uh, up to scratch. What I, I would say. Wow, thank you for sharing those things. And we just appreciate you taking our time to, to speak with us and speak to the e-longevity community as well, too. It's very edifying. We spoke about um, your background, where you come from, your work with the Jack the Ripper case and forensics. And it definitely has been a very enjoyable episode. And we welcome you back if you want to come back again for future episodes, okay? Sure. It's the typical, you know, Finnish people and the, and the Nordic people. They are not very talkative, but that's not a problem with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have no problem with that either. Thank you so much. Thank You're you welcome. so much for your time, Dr. Yari. Yeah, we, we appreciate our co-host, Britannia. Thank you for uh, everyone who supports us. This has been the Elongevity Podcast. And please feel free to visit it and support our Discord as well. You all have a good night. We hope you enjoyed that episode, but who did it? Who was Jack the Ripper? Well, if you look on liverpoolecho.co.uk, you find an article written that speaks about the case and Dr. Lou Helenin's work. And it is um, believed to be Polish migrant Aaron Kosminski. That's who did it. We really appreciate you being here like we mentioned before. And please tune in as we have a, another episode coming very soon. Enjoy. <laughs>